This is Priya Malik, Managing Director at Step Global Group. And this is Abtin Baziri, Managing Director at Brevet Capital Management. Welcome to the Investment Migration Report. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to be investment, tax, or other professional advice or a recommendation to buy or refrain from buying any security, product, or service. The views and opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the views or opinions of our employers. Today, we'd love to welcome you to Season 2 of the Investment Migration Report, Episode 1. We're really happy to welcome our first guest of the season, which is Nima Corpovara, who's one of the leading immigration attorneys in the EB-5 space. Welcome, Nima. It's great to have you on. Uh, if you don't mind, just give us a brief introduction for our audience. Sure. I'm Nima Corpivara. I'm an EB-5 immigration attorney. I've been working in the field of investment immigration, I think, about 12 years now uh, through multiple different firms. Represented somewhere around 5,000 uh, EB-5 individual investors over this, this period of time. Makes me either the largest filer or the second largest filer of um, immigrant applications. I'm happy to be here today. A lot of pressure being the first guest of, of season two. Um, I see Abteen, you already, you already have the jacket on, you're already in the office. I live in Miami. So me, me waking up at 7 a.m. for this was, um, it's been a long time since, since I've been up that early. Well, well um, it's, it's been great to see you in Miami on the same time zone as us, but also it's great to, to have you on. And it sounds like we may have a EB, EB5 industry again. Um, you want to just kind of give us a, a little bit of uh, what's been happening over the last year? Yeah. Well, you know, if, if before I get to the year, let me do a little bit of like a, how, how we got here. Um, you know, this process of, of passing rules and, and laws in Congress, you know, a lot of the time Congress will pass a law and they'll say, OK, let's monitor it. You know, let's see how the law is actually working. And if we need to go in there and mechanic it and make it work, we'll do it. So, you know, if you look at the history of the EB-5 program, you know, 1993 with regional centers coming in, coming in as a pilot, the idea was always Congress was going to oversee the program, make sure it's working correctly and, you know, update it, fix it or terminate it as needed. Well, you know, for the better part of the 90s, for the better part of the early 2000s, nobody was really using the EB-5 regional center program. So it worked perfectly. Um, you know, it wasn't really, as we all know, until 2008, you know, global financial meltdown, illiquidity of markets, that we saw a surge in EB-5 as a source of secondary and tertiary funding. And the more applications we got, you know, starting to get 15,000, 16,000 applications a year, we saw a lot of cracks in the program. Uh, you know, a program drafted in 1993, not really tailored to meet uh, the demands of business or the way the business is done now, uh, there was insufficiencies in the program. And in order to fix that, you need to go back to a highly divided Congress to try to pass new laws. So, you know, us in the industry, some of your other guests, the two of you, certainly that having these conversations with Congress, you have to go through a couple different hurdles. One, you have to explain to them what EB-5 is. Most of them have never heard it. And then once they do hear about it, then you have to answer the question of, okay, well, why does my state not get as much EB-5 funding, right? And you have this division now between, you know, senators from rural states, and then you have senators from, you know, the, the urban states, right? States. More yeah. popular states, more popular cities, you know, you know, New York, Miami, Los Angeles, 
you know, Chicago have historically received very large sums of EB-5 financing, uh, whereas, you know, some, some projects in, in rural, you know, Wisconsin, rural Mississippi have not received EB-5 financing. So, you know, you could try to explain how EB-5 works and how economic modeling works and, you know, the job numbers in those states are going to be much less because the raw materials are not coming from there. But that's that's the hurdle you have to breach. So we kind of went through this process in Congress starting, you know, somewhere around 2013, 2014, trying to get EB-5 reform. And, you know, anytime we came to, you know, a draft bill being put out, it was essentially debt. You know, no agreement could be made between industry um, and, and Congress. And we just kept moving along with the EB-5 program. So at one point, um, I'm sure you guys remember, I think it was actually Senator Grassley himself that said, why are you always putting it on Congress to come up with a solution? You know, USCIS, you're an authorized government body. You're in the weeds of EB-5 every day. Why don't you come out with new regulations? And, you know, USCIS already was always flirting with the idea of, you know, do we have that power? Do we not have that power? And then, you know, they took that affirmative step in 2021, coming out with their own regs, um, you know, during the Trump presidency of a reform of the EB-5 program, you know, most significantly to us in the industry and to our investors was a raising that minimum investment amount to 900,000. So at that point where you, you have my friend, colleague, client, uh, Colin Baring and, and the Baring Regional Centers, they decided to step in. They said enough is enough. They stepped in with litigation and they tested USCIS of whether or not they actually had the authority to raise the to raise the minimum investment to change the the uh, rules and regulations on their own. As a result of that lawsuit, we found out that USCIS did not. Uh, the interesting point of that lawsuit was not necessarily whether or not USCIS had power, but if you remember, Trump was getting around Senate confirmations of key government positions by installing acting directors rather than Senate confirmed directors. And it turns out an acting director does not have the power to shape policy. Uh, so as a result of that, the USCIS regulations were reversed. We went back to the EB-5 we always knew at 500,000, uh, but we had a termination date set for the program in June 30th of 2021. So we kind of saw you know, a marketing conversation with clients of this is your last opportunity to file at 500,000. And we saw a, you know, a large number of investors file in, in June of 2021. Then the EB-5 program expired, the regional center program that is, the direct is permanent, the regional center program expired. We all in the industry assumed that the program would be extended once we had a new federal budget in the U.S. Um, you know, in years past, any time the EB-5 program was set to expire, it was tied to budget reauthorization, and we moved forward. Well, the budget expired on September 30th. Um, Congress did not pass a new budget. They passed a continuing resolution uh, that EB-5 was not included on. That continuing resolution took us to November, then it took us to December, and then I believe we went to February. Um, you know, and then finally on March 15th, uh, we had an omnibus, uh, a new budget for the United States. EB-5 was included with a whole host of new regulations.
And one of the primary issues with this, with this legislation is two things. The way that USCIS was not, excuse me, the way Congress was adding the new law to the federal register was under a me- mechanism called replace and uh, repeal and replace. And then the second is they had language in there requiring regional centers to reauthorize um, in order to sponsor new petitions. This rule was to take effect within 60 days. So all of us in the industry, our investors, our future clients, our partners, our developers, were saying, okay, come, come May 15th, we have a new EB-5 program. You know, we, we suffered as an industry from June until now. We had uncertainty for our clients, for our pending clients, um, regarding their green card status, but come, come May 15th, we're, we're all going to be okay. We're going to be safe. We're going to be back in business. USCIS doesn't like the idea of us being safe, us being back in business, of having the security of the green card for those investors that have filed, that have been approved, that have family here. They decided to interpret the regulations on their own and take the most draconian and, and vicious position they could. And what they have argued, USCIS has, and they put it out in a Q&A, is that Congress requires regional centers to be reauthorized in order to sponsor existing cases or sponsor new cases. And that reauthorization requires a new $18,000 filing fee, background checks, new documents that evidence how the regional center, its members, owners, operators, will conform with the new law. As we know with USCIS, getting a regional center approved is a three to three and a half year process. That becomes quite difficult when the EB-5 program is only reauthorized for five years. So by, by taking this position that regional centers need to reauthorize, by not having the staff, the efficiency, the means to actually reauthorize regional centers, they have taken a five-year reauthorization and have effectively made it a handful of months. So, again, steps in call and bearing and pairing regional centers. Um, they filed a preliminary injunction against USCIS about two months ago on the grounds uh, that USCIS has interpreted the rules wrong and they are causing irreparable harm by terminating regional centers. So, you know, what that really means is you're a regional center. You've been operating for 10 years, right? Bearings, Can-Ams, NYCRCs, the names that we all know in the regional center space, they have spent ungodly you know, amounts of time, sweat equity, money in establishing themselves as trustworthy partners, uh, you know, regional centers that have best-in-market projects. Um, and with one blog post on the USCIS website, they have terminated all that credibility. That's, that's the irreparable harm. So it's really interesting when you, when you go through this litigation process now to see what USCIS's position is um, you know, on, on the action that they've taken. And this is what USCIS has said in court documents. USCIS has said that the EB-5 program, even though it terminated in June of 2021, never expired. The regional center program as a whole has never expired. The only thing that expired was... Homeland Security's ability to issue visas through the State Department. And USCIS took the interpretation that since visas could not be issued, 
They did not have the power to issue visas, so they put the EB-5 program on pause. Very, very interesting take, right? So they're saying rather than us take any action, keep the program going, we just said, okay, we'll shut it down, right? No notice and comment period, no conversation with Congress, no conversation with the internal attorneys of can we keep the program going. They just said, let's jeopardize the green card of, of all the people that have already filed. We're not going to do anything. We're going to sit on our hands. And now that the program has come back, the other position that they're taking is when Congress says the new EB-5 regulations will repeal and replace the old regulations, rather than interpreting that of that is a that is language to get a bill into law, into the federal register, they've interpreted it as the old EB-5 program is dead, long live the new EB-5 program, but because it's dead, you do not have a regional center. So, you know, we had hearings on this. I think, you know, the, the judge mentioned himself, this is the most time, you know, the most people he's ever had in a Zoom hearing, you know, a lot of, a lot of interested people, uh, but, you know, the judges agreed. The judges agreed that USCIS has made an error in law um, that repeal and replace does not mean the EB-5 program is terminated. It is just language of, of getting a bill into the federal register. So we've now moved on to where we have, uh, we've made briefs on what the remedies are. You know, how do we move forward for, for USCIS to fix this harm? And, you know, we're essentially saying that the EB-5 program was not terminated. Regional centers should not uh, be deauthorized, be made inactive. So all regional centers need to come back as reauthorized. Regional centers will evidence that they'll, they'll comply with the new regulations and we'll get back to business. Uh, USCIS and their remedies is, is still saying the opposite. Um, so, you know, I think we're, we're left here with, you know, you know, Bering is going to win his litigation. Um, you know, IIUSA on behalf of Can-Am, EB-5 Capital, Civitas, and, and a few other regional centers has brought a similar lawsuit. Uh, they've asked to intervene on on uh, the bearing lawsuit, um, you know, and we're about 10 days out from submitting these um, these remedies. So this is a preliminary injunction. You know, we expect a decision this week. Hopefully we can get back to to business. So, Nima, does the USCIS just hate EB-5? I mean, that's that's a question that a lot of our investors and, and you know, a lot of the regional centers have. I mean, I can give you an example at Brevet. We have five regional centers that we've owned and managed and operated for you know many years, and every year we have to pay a seventeen thousand um, dollar you know audit fee. Plus, you know, we spend about a hundred thousand dollars you know doing economic analysis annually to make sure we provide the correct information to USCIS in terms of how many jobs each one of these regional centers have created. So this is a two hundred thousand dollar expense for five regional centers every year that we've incurred. To make sure that we stay up to date, to make sure that you know we're you know we're you know conforming with every requirement that USCIS has, and all of these years we've spent all this, and all of a sudden we lose our regional centers. So I know I, I ran into Ron Clasco in Brussels last week, and he was saying uh, you know that they had joined the Bering uh, Regional Center lawsuit on behalf of IAUSA, and I wanted to clarify something you said earlier. Uh, IAUSA is actually um, not representing five regional centers under uh, under the Ron Classico lawsuit, but IAUSA is representing all the regional centers plus five separate regional centers are also um, class members. So it's five regional centers plus 
IIUSA that has a separate lawsuit going on. Although, um, you know, I've heard that uh, the GT or the Greenberg Turing attorneys have completely butchered the, the case and, and IIUSA has kind of saved the day. Do you want just maybe talking about that a bit? Um, I think, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not a litigator, right? Um, I'm just I'm just a person with really strong opinions. Um, so, you know, I don't know some of the mechanisms involved in what goes on in litigation, specifically with these motions to intervene, you know, how you how you draft, you know, your remedies when it comes to irreparable harm, how narrow can they be, you know, how wide can they be? I can tell you, like, my personal opinion on this has been what if you heard if you listen to the hearing, you know, the judge has been involved with EB5 for hours, right? He hasn't been, you know, the 10, 12 years that, that we've been on in this podcast. He's been involved with hours, um, you know, and in that in that brief time, he was able to realize the USCIS has made an error in law and he posed the open question of does USCIS hate EB5, right? He got that impression in hours. So, um, I think when it came to writing these, you know, remedies, you know, my guidance to, to bearing with, again, my little litigation knowledge is you need to keep your remedies narrow. Uh, you have proven irreparable harm. And so you need to ask to be reinstated as a regional center. And the judge, based on the hearing, was inclined to grant that and grant that immediately. I think what has happened since is widening the remedies to include all regional centers, IIUSA representing all regional centers and joining the lawsuit. We're asking for something much different now. We're not saying that one regional center has proven irreparable harm. They have proven damages. Let's put them back in business. We're saying the industry as a whole has harm and put them back in business. And I think that's just a, a much bigger decision for a judge to take. It's a much bigger shot across the bow um, at USCIS of, of saying that USCIS and their attorney, attorneys and the way they handle policy is incompetent, essentially. I much would have preferred that the decision was for bearing alone. And now we have put pressure on USCIS where you have one regional center that is active and no other regional centers are. I think that leaves USCIS in a position where they would be required to reverse position or they would have to face further preliminary injunctions you know, from every other regional center in the space. What are they going to do if they get 600 preliminary injunctions? And I think that's what sort of the judge was, I mean, I was, I was on that hearing and I was listening to it. And first of all, like you were saying, it was really, um, you could tell that the judge was really trying to figure out EB-5 in the short amount of time. Of course, EB-5 has a lot of nuances to it that someone who hasn't been in the industry for all these years, you know, needs to understand in order to make a proper decision. Um, but I think it sounded like when he said that USCIS had made a legal error and he would grant this preliminary injunction just to the plaintiff, which is bearing, that the purpose was sort of to put the pressure on USCIS to then go ahead and do what it needed to do to rectify the entire issue. Yeah, I mean, I agree. You know, this this industry is so funny, right? It's like everyone for himself, no one is going to help you. You know, people will undercut you. People will say bad things about you to your face, you know, all to make their projects and themselves look better. Um, you know, I mean, nobody was ha helping bearing before. 
you know, I don't, I don't know how many of these larger regional centers cared about bearing before, but now that there's been some traction on the lawsuit, it's all of a sudden, okay, we all have to play together. I think Priya, what you said is exactly correct. I think the judge was telling us in the hearing what needed to be in those pleadings, right? He's telling us that, hey, you have proven harm. I will grant this for you. But the idea of granting it for a whole industry, I, I don't know, you know? So I think by, look, we all need to be back in business, right? But I, I'll tell you that, you know, the regional center clients that I represent, after they heard the hearing, you know, they were all like, oh my God, I hope that they only make a call in the regional center and then we can all file our own PIs and there's going to be so much pressure on USCIS, they're going to have to capitulate. But, you know, then there's other regional centers that say, oh, no, 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 no. We have to be included. You know, it can't be called in alone. So it's so the question is why? Right. Why are some regional centers so confident to file their own PIs? Why are other regional centers not? Is it is it purely financial? Is it they don't want to open up their books to prove uh, irreparable harm? I, I don't I don't know. But I think. I think any government agency, right, is going to be antagonistic if you sue them. And if you know you don't snatch you don't snatch victory out of the jaws of defeat is that is that right snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory <laughs> um, it feels a little bit by broadening the lawsuit you know we're snatching we're snatching defeat from the jaws of victory you know I think we had it I think we had an open case uh, a winning case and then you know you have this decision in place that shows USCIS that whether or not you like the program or not we are not to be messed with you know. Uh, we will continue to bring these litigation. We will continue to win. Um, I think we've, you know, significantly slowed down the process and probably put the judge in a tough position uh, by by broadening it. But, you know, again, I, I could be wrong. I think, you know, you're going to have other, you know, legal experts in your future podcast episodes, and and it may turn out that my opinion on this was wrong. Um, very rare <laughs> that I'm wrong, uh, but but I could be, you know. And, and it's not so much that, you know, that people care or don't care about, uh, you know, about bearing and, and, and their lawsuit. But, you know, as much as of a terrible job, in my opinion, Greenberg has done uh, representing uh, uh, bearing in this case and the butchered, you know, all, all the filings. Um, I, I still do believe if Barron loses this lawsuit, it's terrible for everyone in the industry. And which is why, you know, uh, even though Ron Clasco is, is helping five regional centers and representing IIUSA in, in his separate lawsuit, it, it's instrumental for IIUSA and every other organization to support Bering to make sure that they win this lawsuit because Bering losing this lawsuit could also have you know repercussions on the rest of the industry. Yeah. And I got to say, Ron did an amazing job in his uh, amicus brief. Um, re really well done. I think, you know, what USCIS is saying is, okay, even if we made a mistake, we've created new forms. Right. Um, we've accepted money under these new forms. What do we now do? You know, and they even said in their in their in their brief, they said, Colin is saying that we need to get rid of the new forms. We need to go back the way things are. How can we go back to old forms? You know, it's a little bit of, yeah, OK, I robbed the bank, but I bought all this stuff now. What do I do with all this stuff? Right. It's like a really weird argument. You know, it's like we didn't cause the harm. It's it's not our it's not our problem for you to fix this. Right. And I think the judge said in the hearing, he said you very easily could just issue a new blog post saying all regional centers are back. 
you know, and the forms are gone and we'll refund you the money. You're just choosing not, not to do that. Um, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's, does USCIS ADB5, I think it really, you know, really doesn't matter. You know, I think we have regional centers like Bering, we have IEIUSA, we have AIIA, we have organizations, we have, we have the legends of, of Ira Kurzban, we have organizations that are going to carry the mantle. You know, they're going to litigate USCIS to death um, if they go against not really the EB5 program, right? You know, people, people rule, really seem it's to... It's going against democracy and going against the rule yeah. of people. You know, you, you elect your, your congressmen and your senators and they ruled on this. And this is democracy. This is how democracy works. It's a lot slower than we wanted. We wanted this seven years ago. But because of democracy, it's taken seven years for us to get our representatives in Congress and the House and the Senate to, to, to you know, make this litigate, legislation. And now some, you know, bureaucrats sitting at a USCIS office who just thinks that, hey, you know, we don't want to give this visas to people who, you know, they think are millionaires who really are, aren't. But, you know, we don't want to do this visa process. So we're going to be a dictatorship and we're going to rule through this agency what we think the, the country should rule on. It's just ridiculous. It's, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, especially because, you know, USCIS is not funded by the budget. They're funded by legal fees. Nothing brings higher fees than EB-5. You know, it's, it's what got them those, you know, brand new, beautiful IPO offices. But I think, you know, when they, when they pass these laws, you know, again, these senators, the staff of the senators, USCIS, they're, they're not involved in this every day, right? You can't spend, you know, 12 years saying that you need a regional center. And if your regional center is terminated, it's a material change. And any pending, you know, application for an investor is going to be denied. And then all of a sudden come out and say, well, actually, you don't need a regional center to be approved, you know. And, you know, during the court hearing, you know, the AUSA for, uh, for USCIS said, well, if the regional center is deauthorized, they'll just go find a new one. As if, you know, any of us in the industry know getting a new regional center to sponsor you, it's so difficult. And the other, like, absolutely ludicrous thing is, USCIS has spent the last six, seven years narrowing the geographic footprint of regional centers, right? We used to be able to get the whole state, half the state. Now they're giving us like four streets and an adjacent corner. So you want to terminate the regional centers. You think it's really easy for a regional center, for an investor, right? For a project to, to go get a new regional center, to pay those fees. But then you've also been eliminating, you know, the geography that these regional centers uh, cover. So it's like, you're really creating an impossible, impossible situation. Forget new investors, right? Forget new business for existing investors. Most of these investors have due process rights. They're green card holders. I think USCIS is being awfully cavalier, uh, you know, with, with the lives of these investors and most of these investors being exactly who we want in this country, educated, successful, children are in STEM programs, they're going to meet the jobs of tomorrow. Um, it's really terrifying to me. And that's, well, that's one thing that I love about EB-5, because I also do the Canadian program. And with the Canadian program, it's been extremely liberal over the past few years. And we've seen them stop really paying attention to business investment, to bringing on skilled investors and workers and individuals who are actually going to contribute to society, which is 
the perfect thing about the EB-5 program, like you mentioned, it's people that they actually want in the U.S. who are going to contribute, who are bringing in money, who are getting educated, who are going to take on jobs and actually um, work for the economy. So that's one thing. But I also wanted to bring up this contradiction that was also discussed in the hearing in terms of um, they have gone ahead and sort of grandfathered in all the previous investors, which I think is a positive thing to point out because I know a lot of our previous investors were worried about that with all this litigation going on. Where do they stand? So they've started processing these previous applications and they're grandfathering all those people in. So they're expecting all those regional centers to keep supporting these previous investors that they have, but at the same time, making them go through this reauthorization process, which is very contradictory. And how are they supposed to continue operating and bringing in money and support these previous investors if they're not even authorized to bring in new investors and continue business as usual? Um, so what's your opinion on that? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great question. And I think that that question was posed exactly by the judge to USCIS. You know, how do you expect these regional centers to maintain themselves, you know, to be a part of the process, which could be five, seven, eight, nine years, right? Because USCIS is so backlogged, you know, visas for Chinese nationals are backlogged. USCIS is not doing anything to eliminate those backlogs. So you're acting for, you're, you're asking for some sort of never ending uh, operations on the regional center side, even though they have no income, right? So the judge posed that exact question. USCIS responded, well, the regional center still has, you know, fiduciary responsibilities under the, you know, the state laws that they're incorporated. So I, I found that really fascinating that they agree that by being an operating entity, by accepting money, you have fiduciary responsibility. Yet that fiduciary responsibility is not enough to comply with the new integrity measures, you know, that, that the new bill has, that the RIA has. So it's like, they're really torturing themselves with logic. I think, you know, when it says the bill says that you've grandfathered as a current investor, right? You know, the language is not well-written. You know, most of the EB-5 bill is not well-written at all. And I think that's, that's why we have this issue. That's why we were looking forward to this USCIS rulemaking, right? Which, by the way, we still don't have. It is now June 15th. We're 90 days past when the bill passed. We still have nothing from USCIS. I think... Yes, the cases are grandfathered, but the grandfathering is specific to the rules that they're adjudicated under, right? Old investors, you know, pre, uh, pre-June 30th, 2021, are not going to be processed under these new rules that took effect March 15th. But, you know, under the old rules, you need a regional center at the time of the A29, right? You need a regional center so you can get the economic modeling the indirect job creation. Uh, so for USCIS to take this position in a court hearing that you don't need a regional center to get approved, um, it's really, it's just a flat lie, flat out lie. Um, you know, and it's me contradicting hearing, every other, it's contradicting every other policy, every policy they've ever had, every RFE, every request for evidence they've ever had. It's completely contradicting all their policies for 10 years. Absolutely, 100%. 100%, you know, and me, go ahead, please. If, if, if I-829s come along for these investors and suddenly there's no regional center to 
you know, respond to these IH9 RFEs or whatever not, because for some reason the regional center did not get reauthorized or whatever, then it could cause a huge disruption to the entire process, even for these investors who are quote unquote grandfathered in oh, yeah. and protected. I mean, you know, listening to the hearing, I'm, I'm just like beside myself, you know, saying like, this is a lie. This is a lie. This is a lie. Why are we not screaming that this is a lie? Right. Um, you know, the, the thing is, it's, you know, you can say that a regional center has fiduciary duty, but, you know, the regional center is not the issuer. The regional center is not the one that's accepting the money. They're not managing the money. They're not issuing the loans. They're not doing the equity placement, right? The regional center is a business license to sponsor projects. Uh, that's that's it. all it is. And if the regional center decides they don't want to be in this business anymore, they can just terminate that sponsorship agreement. Okay, so what are you going to do as an investor, right? You know, what if what if the issuer, the manager of your new commercial enterprise is also saying, I don't want to do this anymore, I'm leaving, right? What are you going to do as an investor? Are you going to link up with the other investors? Are you guys going to raise more money and hire someone to operate this? Are you going to sue the new commercial enterprise? Are you going to sue the regional center because they left? Okay, say you do. What does that accomplish? What's your damages? You know, do you get a judgment? Can the regional center just file for bankruptcy? And there is no judgment, right? Or do you, what do you do? You know, and USCIS is not taking any of this into account. Um, you know, or, or, or maybe they are and, and, and they don't care about the ramifications, right? But I think for these senators, like specifically Grassley to come out and say that we are protecting investors by putting in these integrity measures, yeah, not really. You know, you're just making things really more complicated. If you really wanted to protect investors, you would get USCIS to process these cases in three months. Then we don't have to worry about material change, right? Then we don't have to worry about redeployment. You know, you've created an environment where you've made it incredibly difficult, not only on investors, but, you know, legitimate operating regional centers and new commercial enterprises because you're not giving them guidance. You know, as an immigration attorney, I want to be able to give my clients perfect guidance. And, you know, one example of is redeployment, where we've never had anything resembling guidance that makes sense. You know, so you have, you know, do-gooders, the people that want to do right by their investors, and they have no idea what to do with this money, right? Do we redeploy it? Do we hold it? What can we put the money in? What can we not put the money in? And, you know, USCIS is not really addressing this stuff. You know, and even if you look at the new bill, the new bill says, okay, you can basically put it in anything. Thank you. 10, 10 years of saying you're going to give us a new bill that's going to solve all these issues. And you've just made, you know, generic platitudes and USCIS is not providing guidance on them. It's like, what, what are we supposed to do? And what, what USCIS doesn't realize is that this is a zero sum game and the investment migration business now globally, there's, you know, north of 40 countries that do this. And even though the U.S. passport, in my opinion, it's still the best passport because you become a citizen. You have every right a local, you know, U.S. born citizen has, except for running for president. You, uh, you know, it's it, it, it making them, you know, making it this difficult to navigate and to get a green card. It just turns people off. And, you know, there's Portugal program. There's you know all these Caribbean programs. There's several different EU programs. It just makes people want to go to those other programs and not come to the U.S. And I think. We're going to we're going to fix this, but it's just the USCIS has not made this easy. You know, one one interesting point is that, um, you know, 
when when Congress writes a, a law, which in 1990 they just wrote a few lines, you know, 500,000 TEA, blah blah blah. You know, the, the agency is supposed to be the the best suited to to fill in the rest, you know, all the rules and regulations. And in 2017, USCIS put out notice and comment, and all of us in industry we said you can't make the price 900,000. There's currency controls in many countries. You're going to make it difficult. If you're trying to make this a middle class program where people could sell their house or sell their business and do a green card, now you're making a million dollar program. Now you're making it for the millionaires. All those not notice and comment, they didn't listen to any of it. They made their own regulations, which was not business friendly, which didn't listen to the industry, did not listen to the investors. And now with this new, uh, you know, taking the regional centers away, they didn't even put it out for not notice and comment, which is, I think, one of the the main thesis of, of, you know, violating the APA rules of not putting out for notice and comment for taking the regional centers away, which I think is what the, uh, the Ron Clasco lawsuit is focusing on. Well, I believe USCIS made some kind of comment in the hearing about that they were thinking of doing notice and comment post afterwards that's, for some reason. That's illegal. You can't, I mean, works, based on, but, you know, Administrative Procedures but, Act. If you don't put it into a notice of comment, then that law is illegal and it gets, you know, it gets repealed. And, and I think that's what the, the lawsuit is at. This is what happened back with the 2019 price increase. So. I mean, uh, you know, I, I hear these reason, the reasons why people within USCIS hate EB-5 and the reasons are like, okay, this is a millionaire's program or these people are paying to get a green card. Well, you know, we, we in the industry, we know how many people are middle class, have sold their home sold their business just for their kids to come to the United States to have the American dream. I mean, I'll give you my example. I was just in Brussels and I, and I give it, you know, I give it, uh, I was moderating the panel and explain, you know, my, my family, when I was nine years old, we left Iran. My father was in the air force and he was under a death sentence. They were going to kill him. Then the Iranian government said, okay, now come back and serve in the Iran Iraq war. When, when the war ended, my family, me being nine at the time, had to basically sell all, all of our belongings, I think a few hundred thousand, to bribe someone at the uh, Austrian embassy and then somebody at the uh, French embassy just to get a visa to come to Germany to be able to come to the United States. Well, you know, people today, you know, there's there's people that have different means just because someone invests 800,000 and it's creating jobs for this country and is coming here and has the means or, or, or you know, basically is the last 800,000 they have doesn't make this a millionaire program. And Whatever, whatever thought process within the USCIS to punish people. I mean, there's people in Ukraine that may sell everything they have just to get a green card just to come here. And people, in, in, I mean, we're seeing in all kinds of trouble spots in the world. This is not a millionaire's program. By you increasing the price from 500000 you now you're making it unaffordable for the middle class. But this is the furthest thing from the truth. And this doesn't take away any other visa categories. And whatever people within the USCIS that think that, they just need to really get a reality check and go talk to some of these investors and understand from these investors. I, yeah, I work with investors every single day. I've been doing this for the last nine years in, in the UAE. And I can tell you that 99% of my clients, maybe only 1% of my clients are ultra high net worth um, that they can just throw around money. 99% of them literally save up pull money from every account, sell houses, sell assets, liquidate their investments. It's like they use every penny that they have to do this program for their children, essentially, and for the future of their families. So it's definitely a huge misconception that everyone who does the EB-5 program are ultra high net worth. They're just rich people that are buying green cards. Absolutely not. That 
is not what I've seen, and I don't think anyone that works with investors. Okay. If, if I could just explain way, this to the USCIS, if I could just get this through their head, this is not millionaires. This is people that are everyday people that just have had, have had enough, and they want to immigrate to the U.S. They want a good you know life for their family, and just make this easier for these people. There's different you know there's people that are in war zones that are just selling everything to try to move to the U.S. and it's ridiculous to think that everyone's a millionaire and these are ultra high net worth and let's make this life horrible for them. Yeah. And, you know, by the way, why do they have to do EB-5? If they're middle class and educated, why do they have to do it? Well, maybe because they haven't raised the visa cap since 1970. So these people can't get H-1s, right? They have to go through the lottery and, you know, they're not getting selected. Um, Or, you know, USCIS is making it impossible to get L-1s or E-2s approved. So, you know, maybe they're trying the legal immigration routes uh, other than EB-5, but they just can't get in, right? There's and no after deal. their frustration of missing out on the H-1B lottery for two or three years of getting their L-1 or E-2 denied, they're saying, okay, I'm going to get every penny together so I could do this EB-5, you know, and primarily so they can come into the U.S. and work and put their kids through through an education system, right? The U.S. education system. I think it's, you know, America is so good at these banners, Right. Uh, make America great again. You're taking U.S. jobs, right? You get these one-sentence quips that dominate the news cycle and shape, you know, our policies. But, you know, if you look at the facts, and I mean, a little bit off topic, but if you look at the facts, you know, the U.S. is below replacement levels for population, right? We're going to constantly have this issue with defaulting on Social Security unless we get more people into this country or if we have more babies, right? To have more babies, we need economic security. And it looks like we're about to go into another recession. Recessions do not produce babies, right? Economic booms produce babies. So what are we doing? We have millions of unfilled jobs. Most of them are the jobs of the future. They're in STEM degrees. They're with big IT companies. America does not produce the the people that have that education. We don't produce that skill set. We produce marketing managers, HR managers, account executives, right? But we're not producing the people that write code. And the person that writes code is going to create 10, 100, 200 jobs, right? I think COVID also showed, you know, you see on the news that this hospital is overcrowded, that hospital is overcrowded. Well, at the time I was living in LA, I'm surrounded by hospitals. There's doctors everywhere, right? We're not overcrowded. Our hospitals are completely fine. We did not have a COVID crisis, but in Kentucky, in Mississippi, where you have maybe one hospital every 20 miles, yeah, they have a COVID crisis, right? Their hospitals are, are, are overrun. And why do they not have more hospitals? They don't have doctors. They don't produce doctors, right? So I think it would be really easy to say, hey, we have a brain drain, right? We have a big skill gap. We're not producing enough children either. The only way that we can fix this is high-skilled immigration reform. We got to let in more people, smarter people. Maybe we do some sort of prescriptive education that if you go to the university and take a STEM degree and you work in a STEM field for five years, your tuition becomes free. This this all seems really easy. Let's let more EB-5 in. Let's raise the visa cap. So H-1B people, we don't have 120,000 or 80,000 available visas for the 400,000 high-skilled qualifiers, right? You just, you fix all this stuff and you start with USCIS and we have a better working system. 
But instead, it's all adversarial and it's all flying under the banner of you're taking American jobs. What I mean, here's like, an important statistics. 55% of all unicorn companies have been founded by immigrants, not first generation immigrants, second generation immigrants, actual immigrants. I mean, look at companies like Tesla, SpaceX, you know, eBay, Google. These are all founded by actual immigrants. I mean, so we want these people in this country. These are the people that are going to come in here, roll up their sleeve, find new companies, you know, invest in our economy. And we got to make it easier for these people. And it's just ridiculous, the, the, the mindset, the really backwards mindset of USCIS. Yeah. And, you know, what USCIS officer, you know, if we submit an EB-1, right, for, for nautical engineer, you know, patents, all this and that, you know, an officer comes back and says, oh, yeah, well, no, he doesn't have enough publications, case denied. USCIS officer has a background in nautical engineering to know this, right? Like, why are you giving, why are you choosing this fight? Of all the fights you could have, what, what is this fight? Mm -hmm. You know, why are you fighting with the EB-5 that had to use a currency swap because they have export controls in that country? Oh, no, sorry, you can't do it. Why? That's, that's how business is done in that country. By the way, currency swaps is how business has been done for like a thousand years. Started with the Medici's. It's called the first banking system. But, you know, USCIS wants to deny all currency swap applications. It's like, why? Because what? Because it's fraud? How do you know it's fraud? I, I personally feel there's this, and, you know, maybe this has something to do with, uh, you know, everything that's gone on over the past 20 years in terms of national security. But I strongly feel that it has something to do with that because, you know, the U.S. immigration system is known to be the toughest in the entire world, even when it comes to dealing with customs and borders agents, like they are the worst of the worst and they're trained to be super intimidating. We have clients calling us just devastated every single day about their entry into the U.S. and they were faced with this and that and the other. And I myself have dealt with it as a Canadian citizen who went to school in the U.S. on a valid F-1 visa for a period of two or three years, I was hauled in every single time I crossed the border. I missed my flights. I sat there for four hours. They didn't say anything to me. They didn't question me. They just, they just, it was just a thing that they did. So I think they, it's like all under this guise also of national security, maybe. I don't know if. I mean, I, I would say that, that uh, no, no immigration or customs uh, uh, officers are more intimidating to me than Canadians, by the way. Every time I go there, oh. Uh, they, they, really? they, they asked me, nice like, are you planning on staying here? I'm like, no, I'm just visiting my grandmother. Are you going to come here? Are you going to take our jobs? Are you going to, how long are you going to stay? You, I'm like, no, no, I'm just visiting my family. My grandmother's here. I'm just visiting. But, uh, you know, I, I just spent three weeks in South America and Central America. I was in, I was in Brussels. I spoke with a lot of agents, a lot of investors over the last few, 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 few weeks. And the, the, the common theme is that, you know, people are like, you know, your, your immigration system is a joke. You guys have open borders. You let 10 million people in with, without any kind of, uh, you know, you know um, oversight. And here we are. We're trying to follow all the rules. You know, we're trying to go through the process legally. We're going to come there. We're going to spend money. We're going to, you know, help create jobs in your economy. And you're making this difficult for us. And I really don't know an answer to tell them. They're right. They're absolutely right. USCIS, you know, we, we've had immigration laws that are as outdated as, you know, 1990. Those are, these are 32-year-old immigration laws. They have, we just need comprehensive immigration reform. Unfortunately, both parties in, are in denial, and they just don't want to meet in the middle. And, of course, everybody suffers, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, last summer I was in London, and I had an immigration question. 
And a friend of mine said, well, why don't you just call the home office? And I was like, excuse me? They're like, yeah, just call the home office, immigration department. I was like, okay, let me call. Assuming it was going to be like our USCIS where it's a black box, no information, no nothing. They, not only did they answer the phone, they spent 45 minutes on the phone with me explaining to me the entire immigration process and what visas I could potentially qualify for. I was like, what the, what? Like that's possible, you know, compared to this black box that we have. I mean, I think, <clears throat> I think the passion comes through, right? in all of us and that the opportunity in the U.S. To, to become an entrepreneur, to build a business, to create jobs, to have a home, I think it's unrivaled across the world, right? Um, certainly, I haven't been anywhere, but but as a result of being an EB-5 attorney, I've, I've been to many countries. Um, and there are things that America just does better than the rest of the world. Um, so I think some of this passion is we could do better. You know, starting with USCIS, we could just do so much better than what we have done now with some easy tweaks, um, you know, and I think as long as we have this separated Republican liberal where, you know, liberals and Democrats want a complete overhaul of the immigration system and Republicans kind of want to go piece by piece. I don't I don't know if we're going to get there. If, if COVID was not the catastrophic event to show us that we have a brain drain and we need to reform our immigration policies, um, then I, I don't know what the catalyst is going to be. Um, but it certainly looks that, you know, America's time at the top is starting to wane. Um, you know, and maybe if we start losing that grip over the world, you know, then we'll finally get the immigration reform we need to rebuild this country. No, I was just going to say, you know, uh, like you said, there's there's a lot of negatives that we talked about, but there's one really big game changer that's a huge positive of this new legislation that we haven't talked about. And that's the concept of being able to change your status when you're in the country on any other visa. And I think, you know, even though the USCIS is slow, even though people from China may have to wait eight to 10 years. This is a game changer. I think I think an investor from China doesn't really care if it's going to take them 10 years to get a green card, if they can come stay here and, you know, work and have every basically every right and responsibility. And, you know, that, you know, the, the reason I think people just hated having to wait five or five to 10 years is because they, they couldn't come here. They had to stay back home and they couldn't have a work visa with this change of status. I think that's a game changer. And I think it actually has a lot of impact on even investors from China. I would love to hear your thoughts, both Priya and Nima on this. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's, it's amazing, right? You, the, the other EB categories always afforded um, this concurrent filing. Um, you know, it's new for EB-5, meaning that if you're in the U.S. in a valid visa, you don't need to wait for your I-526, you know, the first step of the EB-5 to be approved. You can file for the green card right away. You know, you get work authorization, you get a travel document, you can live, work uh, along with your family in the U.S. until that petition is approved. I think, you know, it's definitely a step in the right direction. Um, you know, I think Abtain and Priya, we've talked about this idea of advanced parole before. Um, advanced parole being that if you're outside the United States, uh, but have approved I-526, you can enter. I think that's the step that we need to take in the right direction. I think it's a bit unfair to backlog Chinese nationals because we have inefficient visa processing, because we have inefficient visa numbers. Um, you know, eventually the EB-5 program will no longer work uh, just because the demand will outpace the supply. So I think concurrent filing is great, but I think the idea of if you have an approved I-526, you should be led into the United States. You should be able to live and work here. You should be able to travel. And, you know, our system is backlogged. We don't have enough visa numbers, but you're safe in the United States. Your kids can go to school. We'll get you that green card as soon as we can get it for you. Exactly. 
I mean, I think it is a game changer. And like you said, it's a step in the right direction. Um, I'm glad we're able to, I mean, the conversation about where we're headed with EB5 and USCIS, obviously it, it has had a little bit of a negative spin today on the podcast, but, you know, I think I just want to end off with, um, just your final thoughts on with everything pending in terms of the litigation, what are your expectations? We know it's impossible to sort of predict these things, but in your professional opinion, what are we expecting in terms of timeline of seeing some kind of results and what those results will be so that investors can actually move forward? Yeah, I mean, I think we should hear any day now, you know, really any day, any hour. I think as a result of this litigation, USCIS, even if even if the litigation is not successful, which, which I do believe it will be, I think USCIS is going to process these 956s, you know, reauthorizing regional centers faster than we believe you know, to avoid more of this litigation, to avoid more of this embarrassment. I think the EP5 program, it's, it's healthy, it's attractive. You know, we have a number of just waiting investors. We have a number of top quality developers, you know, ready to, to do the program, make it work. I think we've learned a lot over the last few years about how to structure deals um, that, that doesn't necessarily cause a redeployment issue for investors to safeguard investors. And I think if USCIS were just to let us run, um, you know, we would have a healthy, strong industry with happy participants that would be benefiting the economy of the U.S. And an uh, interesting point that you made, Nima, I mean, uh, you know, like, like you said earlier, in 1990s, even early 2000s, EB-5 wasn't really used prevalent, uh, you know, um, widely. And, and it really was the last downturn in 2008, 2009, where banks stopped lending and interest rates, you know, started going up and things started, or actually interest rates started going down, but things started getting really tough where banks were lending and developers uh, started looking for elsewhere for, you know, alternative sources of capital. And EB-5 was a, was a great choice. Today, where interest rates are rising and, you know, f you know, financing is going to start drying up, I think over the next two or three years, that's going to be a perfect source of, uh, of new capital for, for projects where, you know, it's, it's going to be harder to go to capital markets to get. And I think EB-5 could be one of those things that's going to get us out of, out of this next recession. We just need a little cooperation from, from the USCIS and the U.S. government. Exactly. I agree with that. On, on that note, I think uh, it's been wonderful. Thank you, Nima, for joining us. And uh, hopefully we can have you on again next year. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'll have more positive things to say. I won't, I won't bring the rain clouds on the next podcast. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on the first episode of the second season of the Investment Migration Report. And thank you again to our special guest, Nima, for that very insightful conversation. Look forward to seeing you on future episodes. To contact the Investment Migration Report, please email Priya Malik at Priya, P-R-E-E-Y-A, at stepglobalgroup.com or Abtin Vaziri at the Investment Migration Report at gmail.com or connect to our pages on LinkedIn and YouTube. Thank you for listening.